This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Last week we finished our summer series. We were uh, preaching through the Psalms throughout the summer, and now we come to just a short two-week mini-series where I want to frame up for us the year to come. School is starting. Uh, every activity, sign-ups are happening. We're getting ready uh, for the year ahead. And I want, us to call, I want to call us to the year ahead, starting with a call to greater faith and a missional mindset. Much like Caleb and Joshua, who went into the promised land as spying out before Israel went into it, and they came back and their report was, it is indeed a good land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But the other 10 who went with them said, yes, but there are giants in the land and their cities are strong. But Caleb's response was, let us go up at once, for we are well able to overcome. And that we would look at the year to come and approach it the same way, saying it is indeed a good year that the Lord has before us as a people, individually as well. Yes, there will be giants ahead, but we are well able to overcome. One of the most important teachings that Jesus ever gave was the teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Of all the things he said, it might be the most important teaching. If not the most, it's definitely in the top five. His disciples came to him and they said, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus' response was to give them what we now call the Lord's Prayer, one of the most important teachings of Jesus that we have. It's also one of the most relevant and applicable to our daily lives because we are to pray this often. Jesus said, okay, whenever you pray, pray this way, meaning start this way or end this way or whatever else you pray, always pray this prayer. And it was custom for Christians from the very beginning to pray the Lord's Prayer morning, noon, and night, three times a day. It begins as we look upward and we praise our Father in heaven. We say, Father, you're in heaven. Your name is holy, which means you're set apart. There's no one like you. You're good and, and all the rest. We praise him. But then as, as we go to the petitions of the prayer, the things that we're asking for, the very first petition is thy kingdom come. This is what we are to ask for first. This is what we are to desire first. Not only chronologically, but it takes the priority. Our chief desire is that we would see the kingdom of our God come. So by putting it first in the petitions, Jesus is signaling its importance. That for every disciple of Jesus, our chief desire should be thy kingdom come. But if Jesus told us to pray for this, that means he didn't just want us to desire it, but he meant for us to expect that it should actually come. Because that's how prayer works in his mind which means that disciples of Jesus fervently seek and actually expect to see the power of heaven show up in their lives. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're asking for two things. First, we're saying, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, return to this earth, establish your kingdom in full, bring to conclusion this history, and usher in the history of the world to come, life everlasting in the kingdom of heaven. Come, come back, Lord Jesus. Every time we pray that kingdom come, 
That's the first thing that we're asking for. The second thing we're asking for is that until that day, would you now here in our lives, in little pockets here and there, would you be doing a supernatural transformation of the world around us to make the world around us the kingdom of heaven on earth? Just like it was when Jesus himself ministered in Galilee and in Judea and in Jerusalem, where it says he proclaimed the good news, he healed every affliction and disease, he cast out demons, and wherever he went, he called people to turn from their sinful and selfish ways and to follow after him in a totally new life. Wherever Jesus went, there was the kingdom of heaven. But also so too, he sent out the disciples with the same message and the same miracles. Recall our gospel reading that we just heard moments ago. In verse 1, Jesus calls to himself the twelve, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, bumping down to verse 7, then he instructs them, as you go, say, or proclaim rather, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And they did. Right then, they went and they did that very thing. And when I hear a passage like this, or when I begin to pray, thy kingdom come, I, I don't know about you, but I immediately find myself living in a tension. Here's the tension. On the one hand, I believe extraordinary things. I read a Bible full of crazy things, a Bible that proclaims a God of incomprehensible power. And I believe it all. I believe everything in the Bible. I profess a faith in truths that make no sense to the average Western mind. I do. But when I look at my life, on the other hand, I, I don't see too much that is extraordinary, incomprehensible, or transcendent. When I read the Scriptures and the teachings of Jesus in particular, I, I wonder, is that how it's supposed to be? Or sometimes I wonder, shouldn't there be more evidence of extraordinary things, evidence in my life of the incomparably great power of this God that I profess and believe in? Furthermore, on this other hand, isn't it enough to be ordinary? to be faithful in the little things, because after all, God made all things, including the small and the ordinary, and He has blessed and He's called good every part of creation and every aspect of life. Every minute of the day is sacred, even if nothing extraordinary happens in that minute. So I'm caught in this tension. Perhaps you are too, and, and I wonder, okay, so, so which is it? Is our life meant to be ordinary or extraordinary? And I think the answer is yes. Yes. Like a good Anglican, we like to go both and whenever we can. Why be either or and say, well, either you thought I was just really bad at grammar for a moment there. You were like, um, yeah, I saw the hesitation. Is it either extraordinary or ordinary? We have to choose. Well, how about instead of being either or, we're going to say it's both and. The Christian life is both ordinary and extraordinary. Now, 
in here today, every single one of you, each of us, probably tends to, inclines towards one of these or the other. Some of you tip towards the extraordinary. You like your coffee venti, you like your pizza extra large, deep dish supreme, and you use the word epic like it was invented yesterday. Others of you, you're content with your espresso. You take your pizza in the extra small personal pan, and your favorite adjective is diminutive. <laughs> Have you ever wondered, by the way, why there's no such thing as, as extra medium? There's extra large and extra small, but where's the extra medium? Okay. You can thank Steve Williamson for that uh, incredible ponder point. <laughs> we take these preferences into our Christian life. So if you incline towards the extraordinary, you want to see more miracles. You want revival. You love to pray, thy kingdom come. And if you're not careful, you can become impatient with God, impatient with others, or impatient with yourself. And you forget that the sacred can be found in the small, and, and actually sometimes it's found there best of all. Like the beloved Mother Teresa quote, it's not about doing great things. It's about doing small things with great love. If you incline towards the ordinary, and you're, you're very happy to look for God in the small and every day, and while someone over there is saying, thy kingdom come, you're thinking, well, that's great, but my two-year-old just pooped on the floor. I can't find my keys, and I was supposed to be at church five minutes ago just to pull a hypothetical situation out of thin air. <laughs> and if you climb towards the ordinary, you have to be careful that the draw towards ordinary isn't in fact or doesn't become the subtle ploy of the enemy to lull you into a sleepy spirituality where you lose your hunger, you lose zeal, you lose fervency. Those things, by the way, are all things that the New Testament says these ought to characterize the life of a disciple of Jesus. Hunger, zeal, fervency. So, of course, we're looking for a balance between the ordinary and the extraordinary, or what we might call a patient expectancy. Because truly, the, the, we're looking for nothing less than the kingdom of heaven. But we're looking for it in the humble little lives that we are living here now on earth. So next week, we're going to focus on the ordinary, the on earth side of, of the equation. This week, our goal is to keep before us the expansive vision of the life of a disciple of Jesus. As Paul said in Philippians 3, remember, your citizenship is in heaven. Or as Peter said when he's writing to the church in his letter, he says, you are exiles. In other words, you've never actually been home. This world is not your home. You're an exile here. Live like it. And even Jesus, during his very trial, said, my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, even now, our lives are meant to have an otherworldly, heavenly quality, a radical dimension to them. Your life is meant to be extraordinary. Do you expect that? 
don't worry right now so much about how, how well are you doing at living that out. Let's save that for later, but let's just begin here. Do you even expect that? That your life should be extraordinary because you are a follower of Jesus. So the path to extraordinary begins with this basic posture of expectancy. Followers of Jesus live expectantly. So expect the kingdom to be at hand just around the corner. Expect to see the hand of God and the power of heaven show up in your life from time to time. Jesus said the kingdom is already within you. So expect that every once in a while it's going to bubble over and it's going to change the life of someone near to you because they are near to you. Or as Jesus said, those who believe in me, as the scriptures have said, out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water, bringing life and transformation wherever they flow. And John, writing the gospel, said in parentheses after that, by this he meant the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Or again, back to our gospel passage. He called the twelve. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And he said, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So the disciples, as they go out on their mission, they were given by Jesus authority to proclaim the kingdom. But they were also given by Jesus the authority to act in power to bring about the kingdom that they were proclaiming. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Then you have authority. You have authority to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. You have authority to act in power to bring about the kingdom of heaven in your life. Now, of course, that doesn't come from you. It comes from outside of you. It's the external gift of the Holy Spirit coming into you as you believe in Jesus and seek to obey His commands. Of course, that doesn't come from you. But believing His commands and following after Him, receiving the Holy Spirit, that authority is truly yours. You have authority to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and to act in power to bring it about in your very life. Now, right away, you protest and you say, but hold on. I'm not a venti, extra-large, deep-dish, bold personality. That's just not who I am. Fine. Me either. Let me come as a surprise to those of you who only know me from preaching, but when I'm not preaching, I'm actually pretty mild in person. I am Dutch, after all. Okay? <laughs> it used to bother me to no end in high school. People would always be like, Brett, what's wrong? Are you okay? Why are you so sad? And I'd say, no, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. That's just my face. I think the Apostle Paul was also mild-mannered. And he's writing to the Corinthians at the beginning of his first letter to them, and, and he says, recall that when I came to you, it was with trembling and weakness and with much fear. But in proclaiming his message, he said, but the message came to you with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So what do I want? Well, I'm not worried anymore if I'm bold in my personality. Some of you are. Most of you are not. 
We don't have to be bold in our personality to proclaim the kingdom and to bring it about in power. But if we're not bold in personality, we do need to be, and I want to be, bold in prayer. More about that next week. Jesus sent the 12 out. He gave them authority to heal, to cast out demons. And he has given authority to the church today, now, here, Church of the Resurrection. He's given us the same message and the same authority. Do you believe that? And when we fervently expect to see the kingdom of heaven breaking in, then it's going to be the natural thing for us to live our lives on mission. And vice versa, when we recognize and live our lives on mission, knowing that we have authority, we're going to start expecting to see the kingdom of heaven breaking in from time to time. But of course, if we, if we lose this fervent expectation, if we stop looking for the kingdom of heaven, we'll lose the sense of being on mission. And the other way around, if we stop, if we lose our sense of being on mission, we'll forget to look for the kingdom of heaven to break in in our lives. All right, well, if you're feeling overwhelmed right now, again, I understand. If you're feeling that tension that I described earlier, you're feeling it very acutely, I understand. Let me encourage you now, just for a moment, that if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you've said, yes, you are Lord of my life, I'm going to follow you, then you're already much more extraordinary than you realize. And in the eyes of the world, you're actually crazy. You're nuts. I hope that encourages you. <laughs> Let's talk about the radical nature of being just an ordinary average follower of Jesus, right? So for starters, for you to become a follower of Jesus, it means that you have already promised Jesus that you will follow him even if it means that you will be killed for it or tortured or imprisoned or mistreated or, yes, also insulted, maligned, looked down upon, slighted, insulted. And even if everything goes wrong in your life, you've said, well, Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what. You've already made that commitment. It's step one to becoming a disciple. It's not like step 10, we'll work up to that. That's for the black belt Christians. Let's start with the nice and easy stuff, and eventually we'll get to be ready to lose your life and give everything away if you have to. No, Jesus said, this is step one. He didn't say, if you want to follow me, come back to my guest center. I have a gift I'd love to give you. I want to hear a little bit more about you and give you a chance to ask me a few questions. We do that here. That's not our path to disciple. If you told me I want to become a disciple, I would say the same thing to you, okay, ready to give your life. But it isn't step 10, it's step one. That's pretty radical. Following Jesus means you've already sworn off all personal possessions. You're prepared to give away or sell anything if the need should arise. You've already made that commitment. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's crazy. You've also sworn off all personal ambition. You've rejected the idols of the world of fame, wealth, power, pleasure, and self-indulgence, the rest. That's pretty radical. Perhaps most radical of all, if you are a basic, average follower of Jesus, it means you've also sworn off self-sufficiency. You've admitted your great need, your inability to do anything on your own, and you're actively looking for your own faults and shortcomings in order to admit your wrongs before God and others. Yeah, that is not normal. 
You've oriented your life to serve others rather than working all the angles to get others to serve you. That's pretty extraordinary. This summer I was at our ACNA Provincial Assembly and had the privilege of hearing Russell Moore speak, who's an important leader um, nationally, a Christian leader. And at the end of his talk, he was telling a story about uh, being at a radio show, and the hosts were, were you know, self-proclaimed radical leftist progressives, but they wanted him on the show because he's basically the opposite of that. And they're asking him question after question about his views on sexuality. And they said, I'm sorry we keep asking you. During the break, they leaned in, sorry we keep asking you all these questions about sexuality, but we've just never met anybody who thinks what you think and believes what you believe. That's pretty radical. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I get that all the time. Sure. But you know what? I believe stuff that's even weirder. <laughs> and, and he leans in. He says, yeah. Like, I'm waiting for a man previously dead to show up in the sky riding a horse. <laughs> so if you are an ordinary follower of Jesus, uh, that's already pretty extraordinary. I want to conclude today by dipping in a little bit to next week. How do we take this extraordinary faith and begin applying it to our ordinary, everyday lives. Well, I wonder, what would it be like if we all made the habit of constantly, or at least frequently, asking the question, what would it look like for the kingdom of heaven to break in right here, right now? So whatever situation you find yourself in, or you're about to go into, you pause, and you, you exercise your imagination, and, and you begin wondering, okay, what would it look like if Jesus and His kingdom showed up right here in this situation, for these people right around me, for whatever crisis I'm about to step into? What would that look like? And as you are filling out your imagination, you start to pray accordingly. Your imagination is now giving you ideas of, of how to pray for a reality that apart from the power of God will not happen. And you see this reality taking shape in your mind, and you say, Father, do this thing that I'm seeing. Do this and this and this, and you're naming it specifically, and you conclude by saying, let your kingdom come here, now, in this thing that I'm about to step into. Let your kingdom come. So when you wake up every day, when you're driving into work, when you're cleaning up the dishes after breakfast, you're asking the question, all right, what would it look like for the power of heaven to break in right now? You imagine it. You pray accordingly. When the car breaks down, when you're heading into a big presentation at work, when you're going into a conversation where conflict is bound to be there, what would it be like to pause as you go in and just say, okay, what would it look like for Jesus and His kingdom to show up and to actually show up through me? And you pray to that end, and you step in. When the deadlines are coming, when you're stumped by a mess at work that on the surface seems to have nothing to do with, with heaven or spirituality or all of that, but actually God really cares about that, and you say, okay, what would it look like for God to come into this? What would it look like for my child who's out of control or going astray, and I, I don't know or we don't know how to parent this child right now? What would it look like for the kingdom of heaven and the power of God to show up? Begin imagining that. You begin praying accordingly. Let your kingdom come. When there's not enough money for this month's bills, when there's too much money, and you don't know how to spend it. You say, all right, what would it look like for the kingdom of heaven? What would Jesus do? Sitting with a friend, 
she shares that her marriage is falling apart. And just inwardly, you pause. You decide, I'm not going to panic. And yes, I'm going to be compassionate and empathetic, but I'm also going to be inwardly asking the question, okay, what does the kingdom of heaven look like for her, for her marriage? And how, Lord, might you be moving in me to minister that right now? You pray accordingly. Lord, let your kingdom come as I step into this very situation. You see how this is in extremely applicable to every moment of life? There's never a moment where you don't need to be asking this question or, or where you can't be asking this question. There's never a moment where the answer to this question and the different actions that you'll take because you're asking it won't make a difference. Things will happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise if we begin asking this question, using our imaginations and praying accordingly. So let's start by going into every situation this week asking what would it look like for Jesus to show up through me and put his kingdom on display. Pray accordingly, ask for it in the name of Jesus. And may we this year grow in the confidence of Caleb and Joshua who said, let us go up, for we are well able to overcome. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.